Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. En Spring 2021, reporter Brian Avalar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo. Murder and Silence in El Salvador, the story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro, ¿dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences in self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears. Amanda here, co-host of Invisible Tears. And today we don't have Jane, but we do have Drew joining us to cover a cold case that was actually sent in to us from Jennifer Amell. That name should sound familiar to all of our guests. She's the producer of Dark Valley and she's a member of the Crawl Space team. This case is very uh, near and dear to Jen because it actually occurred where she grew up in Dunningtown, Pennsylvania. And so we're going to cover the cold case of the suitcase Jane Doe. I really just want to reiterate in the beginning of our episodes, we do a disclaimer for the content that's going to be in the episode. It may be difficult for people to hear. This is a case that is pretty gruesome. So listener discretion is advised with covering this case. I think in order to get all the pieces out about this case, we do need to go over some of these details. It's not that we want to glorify any of these details by any means, 
But in order to truly cover the entire case, we do have to go into some detail. And some of it is pretty hard to hear. So please brace yourselves. On July 11, 1995, a local fisherman named Buck, who also worked for the hatchery, was walking along Valley Creek in Pennsylvania. On this day, he stumbled across an object that was wrapped up in a dark green trash bag on the side of the creek. It was partially underwater. He opened the trash bag and found a small maroon leather suitcase that was bound in tape and wire. Inside the suitcase, he saw that there was a quilt, a bedsheet, and a light blue long-sleeved denim button-down shirt. None of these items are very particular. They can be found in almost every single department store. So unfortunately, the investigators didn't have much to go on uh, with these items being found. Once he unwrapped the quilt in the bedsheet, he found a garment bag. Inside this bag is where he saw that there was a head, a torso, and arms partially decomposed of a female. No sign of the legs. So he called the state police at around 1 p.m. that day as soon as he noticed this. When the police found the uh, torso and looked a little bit deeper into it, they saw that it had a blood-stained bra on, and that was it. There was no other features uh, to her body. There were no scars, tattoos, giving the authorities very little to go on um, at this time. There was nothing to identify her with. So the initial autopsy uh, was performed by the Chester County coroner, but they were unable to determine what the cause of death was. There was no obvious manner. They could not see any stabbings, bullet wounds. Uh, the only signs of force upon the body parts was a, uh, a black eye and a couple bruises on her back, potentially from a domestic abuse prior or during the attack. So authorities are still unable to determine what the cause of death was. All that they had was body parts within a suitcase along a river. Um, toxicology came back uh, negative, apart from a couple of drinks of alcohol in her system. Um, so she wasn't sedated, she wasn't a drug user, and she wasn't drunk um, at the time of the attack. So it's very interesting as to what background did this woman lead. Unfortunately, even to this day, she is still a Jane Doe. Um, it's determined that she might be of Eastern European or Hispanic descent. To be honest, they don't even know if they're if she was a local, correct? Correct. Yep. There's possibly that she might have been an undocumented immigrant. And unfortunately, they have no information to go off of. Yeah. Going off of that to the possibility of her being an undocumented immigrant worker. Since Jen is from the area, she knows that there's mushroom farming exists around this area. And many times undocumented immigrants are working it. So there's a possibility of that. And also going along with that, many of these undocumented immigrants actually live along the river, fairly close to where Suitcase Jane Doe was found. Yep. Now authorities were able to determine at the location that they believe the murder did not take place there, that the body was uh, just disposed of there. Um, there are some theories with the train tracks being so close, you know, was the suitcase thrown off of a train? Um, was it thrown off of... Uh, the overpass, because this was right near a tunnel, which has a lot of local lore to it. And I think this story actually adds to it without people realizing it's based off of a, a real event. And a real event that's not all that long ago. 1995, it is 28 years old, but Jen remembers hearing the legend when she was in high school, which wouldn't have been that long after this event took place. 
So it also leads to the fact of, was it a legend prior to the murder? Um, and if so, did somebody just be like, oh, this is a great way to dispose of the body here, knowing that it's just going to add to the lore. Nobody knows where it started or why it came from. I actually did hear Jen comment a little bit about that as she started pinging people, obviously, that that she knew in the area, really inquiring about the lore, about, you know, these tunnels. And based off of the conversations that she had with her trying to understand where the lore really stemmed from, the lore actually existed before this even happened. So that goes to say, was it somebody who was somewhat local to the area and was just trying to add to the lore because that lore existed or something else. Right. Using the lore is almost like a countermeasure. Right. Knowing that the locals believe that they've heard this story a thousand times and that it's local biker gangs that gangs they use as a disposal area. What better way to muddy that water than to actually commit a crime in the same exact fashion, knowing that there's already quote-unquote suspects out there. Yeah, so first discovery, torso and head. Now, it's interesting because there really isn't any detail that confirms that arms or hands were there. However, they do have fingerprints on file. So take that how you will. Yeah, because there was an early report that when Buck came across the suitcase, he at first thought in his mind was, this is suitcase money. I'm getting paid. And then he opened it up and he saw a hand. Okay. So that was one report. However, over the course of the investigation, it was determined that there wasn't actually any hands within the suitcase. But yeah, how did they get fingerprints if there's no arms or legs? And how do they know that those fingerprints are of the murder victim? Hers. Exactly. Yep. All right. So now we move to our second discovery. So six months later, on January 28th, 1996, a jogger discovered both of her legs at Core Creek Park in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. The legs were in a wooded area between Bridgetown Pike and Park Road near the Duchess Lane picnic area. So this location was about an hour away from where the torso was found. Again, six months after the torso was found. And in separate counties. So that muddied the waters as well, having two separate counties and state police involved with this investigation. So when Bucks County police arrived on the scene, they first discovered the right leg, hip to foot. With no skin from the upper thigh to the ankle, the investigators thought that this was possibly due to animal activity. Nearby in a shallow grave, the left leg was then found. Thigh to below the knee, no foot on this leg. That was discovered along with yet another dark green trash bag. Inside the trash bag were women's clothing. The clothing included one sweater with Mickey and Minnie Mouse on it, blue, black, and pink, size 10, one denim jacket, one denim skirt, and one small black jumper. Found near the trash bag was a white blouse with gold and black buttons. It's reported that the sizes of clothing were consistent with the size of the torso. So then the second autopsy is performed. Once a connection was made by the Chester and the Bucks County officials, again, as you outlined, different counties, an autopsy to determine the match between the legs and the torsos was conducted at the Phoenixville Hospital Morgue. The autopsy was witnessed by Chester and Bucks County detectives and performed by forensic anthropologists and a pathologist. The findings were as follows. 
The victim is of possible European or Hispanic descent, standing between 4'11 and 5'4, approximate age 25 to 30 years old. Time of death for both torso and legs was determined to be about six months ago. So when the torso was found, it was hard to determine not just the cause of death, which wasn't determined, but also the amount of time that it had been where it was found. The determination was anywhere from three days to two weeks. So with these legs, it was determined that they had been there for six months. Still no cause, manner, or mechanism of death was determined. The right leg fit into the hip socket of the torso perfectly. Both leg bone and torso bore uh, 15 cut marks from a small sharp blade, possibly a knife. All cuts were consistent and matched. The bone itself was not cut through. I'm getting visuals. I don't like getting visuals. I'm sure the listeners are too. So DNA was taken from both the torso and the legs, um, and it was sent to Cellmark Diagnostic Labs in Germantown, Maryland, to determine if they were a match. The test came back inconclusive because the leg bones were so deteriorated. So a positive DNA match was never made, but everybody on the forensic teams and the investigators were confident that both the torso and the legs belonged to the same body because of the perfect fit. So now that they had almost all of the pieces of her body, again, they estimated her age to be between 25 and 30, estimated weight, 125 pounds, dark brown hair color, worn short. She had brown eyes. She had pierced ears. So they collected DNA and her fingerprints are available in APHIS and Interpol and her dentals are in CODIS. Listening to Jen talk, she did talk about one of the doctors that was reviewing the uh, leg and he did state that he never actually saw the torso. So it's theorized that possibly just the hip bone was sent to match up with the leg or they used it by looking at um, photographs to determine that they fit perfectly. But actually taking the torso and the leg and lining them up like a puzzle, that actually did not happen. So once this uh, case got out there, police received over 200 tips over the next two years, um, but they were unable to proceed any further with the investigation leading off of these tips. Uh, Without the identity of the victim, it was difficult to know where to even begin. The consensus is that the victim was not murdered at either creek dump sites, um, but that's where the bodies were placed. Uh, just due to there was no other blood around. It was very tight and needy as far as wrapping the bodies up within the suitcase to dispose of. So with that, forensic sketches were made of the victim's face to attempt to identify this missing person. And then in November of 1997, sculptor Frank Bender was commissioned to create a bust of what the Jane Doe looks like according to autopsy results. And we will have that in this video for you to be able to view. And when you look at it, it definitely seems like possibly Eastern European descent, but you can understand how it could also be Hispanic woman as well. Yep, you could see either characteristics in the reconstructions. Jen actually compiled a really fantastic website specifically dedicated to this case. We'll make sure and obviously put that in the show notes. We will also make sure and note her Patreon that she created to help support the investigation as well. We'll specifically put that in the show notes, but also it's on her website that will be noted as well. Any of the pictures that Jen has on her website, we'll go ahead and make sure and include them in our visual on YouTube as well. So if you are just listening to the audio of the podcast, go ahead and jump over onto our YouTube and watch the video um, so you can see some of those visuals as well.
Yeah, when we started to dig into this into this Jane Doe case, you know, I started with a basic Google search of suitcase murder Pennsylvania. And holy shit. <laughs> there were quite a few that came up. But when you looked into each one of them, you could tell that they actually they weren't related. They were just that was the way that the bodies were disposed of. Now I haven't expanded the search to look at other states, but it was the hell's going on in, you know, Pennsylvania for this to be common. Now Amanda and I were actually sitting in our store one day and we had a customer came in who was from Philadelphia. And he actually told us that Philadelphia is currently having an issue with prostitutes being found in suitcases. So it seems like this trend has not stopped. There's still so many more unsolved murders of people being found in, in suitcases in particular in Pennsylvania. It's just interesting to see such an isolated disposable method. Being up here in New Hampshire, I can't recall hearing of a case where a suitcase is involved. You have a couple of cases where oil drums are involved, Containers. Mm-hmm. not suitcases. Yep. And I'll say definitely, just generally speaking, as I've tried to spend some time to researching, especially specifically within Philadelphia, I would just say, generally speaking, Philadelphia has a very historic trend of bodies being found dismembered in containers, whether it's a suitcase, whether it's a drum, whether it's a box. Um, again, it's disturbing for some reason. This has always historically happened in Philadelphia. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Going back to the treatment of suitcase Jane Doe, though, and I feel so bad calling her suitcase Jane Doe, but unfortunately, that's the distinguishing name that she has because she is unidentified and is a Jane Doe, unfortunately. I can't help but focus on the difference of treatment with the separate pieces of her body. It seems as if the first found drop her torso and head was wrapped with care in multiple layers, almost as if someone knew her, but then the condition of which her legs were separately found six months later is very, very different, almost like a discard. So I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Because that's it, saying that I'm leaning more towards this was more than one individual. Yeah, I would actually agree with you. I would agree that the disposal of the body parts definitely differs from location to location and does show that there's two different, you know, possibly two different offenders. However, wouldn't both offenders be wrapping up the body at the same time? Or were they really just taken and tried to wrap up and dispose of separately? That's the case. It does almost seem like are there even more separate crime scenes as far as how the body was caught up and then put into the suitcases? Or were both crime scenes, the body parts, wrapped up really nicely? Because as we saw with the legs, animals got into it. Did they truly get rid of all the wrappings and stuff and where the legs actually truly quote unquote cared for, but being out in the elements for six months longer, all of that care just got ripped away from animals and mother nature. Could have been definitely, especially if there's some sort of determination, you know, obviously based off of the condition, if they think that animals got to the legs, they, they very well could have removed anything that anything was possibly wrapped in too, especially over the span of six months. I don't know. This this case really disturbs me. So even though our suitcase Jane Doe, so even though she's not identified, and this case is most certainly not solved, for some reason, the second discovery or her legs were actually incinerated. 
right after they performed the autopsy and collected what they needed to from the legs. And as Jen has been digging in and trying to connect with officials, nobody knows where the torso is either. Do they know where the head is? Or because they have a bust that could dispose as well? Yeah, I'm not sure. So the location of the torso and the head is unknown, but it was verified that the legs were actually incinerated. Can you even imagine being a family member of somebody who was missing for a very long time, somehow finding out that they were an unidentified Jane Doe and hearing that part of their body was missing and the other part was incinerated, so you couldn't even bury their entire body? Eh, at some point, if somebody who is truly unidentified, no family members come forward, there's nobody to claim a body. The coroner's office has to do something with them. True. So I do understand the whole, as soon as you take all of the evidence necessary, what are you going to do with it after that point? There's nothing else to gather from it. There's nobody there to claim body. I guess incinerating is the best way to get rid of it. I personally don't agree with it, but... I suppose some typical protocol might actually be that. I think that some standard or typical protocol is after a certain amount of time, the body is actually buried. So this tunnel area, Pennsylvania, had such a lore about it that the guy who found the body, his name is Buck, he was sitting there one day as he was doing the fish hatchery, walking along the creek, and he told himself, Buck, one day you're going to find a body. He just had that feeling. It was that sort of area that he just knew throughout his time working on that creek that at some point he would find a body. And sure enough, he did. So it just kind of adds to the lore of that area, that tunnel, just has that negative feel about it that you know you're going to come across something bad. It's not a you know warm and fuzzy place. That's a weird point. It's just a weird thought to have. I guess if you're local to that area and having so much of that lore, like sort of embedded in your brain, I guess that could cause that type of thought to occur. Yeah. And speaking about the lore too, there is a biker gang theory. So within that area, the warlocks and the pagans, two separate biker gangs exist. And I think in speaking about the lore, that is pretty standardly the biker games come up in in conversation um, with the lore. Because again, in trying to think of, you know, spitballing some sort of theory as to, you know, what could have occurred and why this occurred, obviously biker gangs are most often connected with uh, criminal activity. Now, to what degree of criminal activity? That's up for speculation, right? Um, Jen was also contacted by... A detective that worked uh, pretty closely with Crawl Space when he heard about this suitcase Jane Doe uh, because he was actually working on a case with Don Marie Miller, who was missing in Pennsylvania. And he went through the due diligence in actually clearing that suitcase Jane Doe was not Don Marie Miller through dental records. So that is one person that is confirmed she is not. And I think it's also would be interesting to note, too, there are four other doe cases that are in Pennsylvania that either fit with the demographic of the person that was found or the treatment in suitcases that Jen was able to really 
outline and specifically pick out. Even though this person was actually found three and a half hours north of where suitcase Jane Doe was, Beth Doe is what she's commonly referred to, um, was found in the Pocono Mountain area in 1976. There was a total of three suitcases found. Two of the suitcases contained arms and legs, and the other one was a torso, head, and a full-term fetus. So that is one case. And while, mind you, three and a half hours away, so who knows? Are they connected? Are they not? It was also a significant, significantly earlier, too, right, in 1976. In searching, Jen found actually three other doe cases that were within an hour from where suitcase Jane Doe was found. Two of them were found in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. One of them was found in 1986, and she was six months pregnant. One of them was found in July of 1995. The other was found in French Creek, which is actually very close. It's only 20 minutes outside Downingtown. She was found in a shallow grave. She was biracial. So some similarities, some closeness in proximity, but again, are they connected? Again, the identities aren't even known. So it's all a big mystery. Do you have a theory on who she was, what sort of background she had, or who might have actually been responsible based off of the digging that we've done? Background, I would definitely say leaning towards a undocumented immigrant or somebody who may even be here legally, but their family doesn't want to report her missing for whatever reason. And as far as the disposal, um, using that as a site, I think the head and the torso was just something to add to the lore. And then the disposing of the legs in the next county, you know, hour away, it was just a way to try to see if they could not be connected right. or to really throw, you know, the authorities off. So that's what I think why there was the two separate dump sites and why that tunnel was chosen for the head and torso. Because let's face it, what's going to be a more gruesome scene to come across? A couple of legs in a suitcase or just a head and torso? Yeah, I agree with that, that probably the location of the torso and the head is definitely just to sort of add to add to the um, add to the shockingness of the lore. I definitely do feel like it was multiple people. And as far as her background and demographic, I'm, I'm definitely leaning a little bit more towards undocumented, you know, immigrant worker, especially with how prevalent the mushroom farming was around that area. That was a really good piece of information that Jen divulged. But regardless of our theories or our conjecture, you know, she's uh, she's unidentified. Obviously, this case is unsolved. The other thing interesting, too, was the type of knife that they were able to identify that was used, that it was a small bladed knife, either a buck knife or an exacto knife. Now, if you were to try to carry out a dismemberment, I imagine you would want to use something a little bit bigger than that. So that almost lends to the, it wasn't premeditated. And with how the body was disposed of, where it was disposed of, it wasn't premeditated. Could you possibly be looking at a small group of younger males, either late teens or early 20s, with how, I almost want to say amateurish, the disposal and also the dismemberment was now they were able to get it accomplished but were they using the right tools for it so does that also lend to the it being the first time that they dismembered a body now if you look at disposal you would say you know they've had to have done something like this before everything was wrapped up nicely put into a suitcase disposed of obviously there was no evidence left behind 
it's she's still unidentified. It's still an unsolved case. So they were able to accomplish what they wanted to, but it doesn't seem like there was as much thought into it unless it was premeditated to look like that. It could be somebody who's has some hunting background, but if, if the woman was an immigrant and they don't view her as a person, they might have no issues with, you know, keeping their stomach down to just cut up and dispose of the body. Yeah. I mean, she could have possibly been viewed as a commodity or a piece of property or something of the sort, in which case it would have been easy for this individual. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, ultimately, we could sit here and speculate, but I mean, at the end of the day, really don't know. We could only theorize different things and sort of say where our gut's taking us and sort of spitball different um, sort of ideas. But yeah, she's still unidentified. But the authorities have all of the pieces so she can be identified. You know, the dental records and the fingerprints and the DNA. Do you happen to have any other information or know a little bit more about this case? Uh, we still want to try to get it out there that this is an unsolved case of an unidentified woman. So please feel free to reach out to us or Jenna Mel at Dark Valley, and we'll make sure to put the website in the show notes for anybody that might have some more information. Yep. Jen has all of the all the contact information on her specific suitcase uh, Jane Doe website. Um, so you can go ahead and, and shoot messages out to her directly too. And again, she has that Patreon to help support the, the uh, cost of the investigation to keep on going with the investigation as well. Yeah, if anybody has any sort of information or any sort of leads, please reach out. Or if they know of any other bodies that were found in suitcases in the Pennsylvania area that we didn't talk about, who knows, we might be able to identify that this is a little bit bigger of an issue than just these, these one-offs that have happened. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.